This week's episode is the second of two, where I talk to Gary Rogowski, author of Handmaid, Creative Focus in the Age of Distraction. We jump right back into the interview, where Gary talks about forgiveness, one of the key themes of his book. Now, forgiveness, we have to get to this topic. It's a big one. And I think that, you know, particularly when you, you know, when you're starting out, it becomes uh, so important. And it, you know, it, it depends entirely on your, on your nature and how you internalize failure. And that's a big deal. Coming from a Catholic background uh, myself, I was uh, pretty hard on myself, pretty hard on myself. And that translates into, you know, how, how I dealt with screwing things up, so many issues. But it was at a design open house. Uh, we were talking, I think it was that one on curiosity. And I looked over at a student and I just looked him right in the eye and I said, it's about forgiveness. This guy was in the military for 20 years. Sweet guy, Patrick. And, uh, but he had such a tough time when he made a mistake. He was so hard on himself when he made a mistake. And that's been a huge lesson. And it's taken my life to figure it out. And I'm still, which is why you say, when you say you you got a Rogowski it, I just laugh because I'm still pretty loud in the shop when I make a mistake. And uh, learning how to forgive yourself is a constant effort, constant. You know, you, you mentioned when you were sharing a shop and how you'd make this huge glaring error and you'd go across to the, the colleague that you were sharing the place with and you'd say, come look at this, come look at what I've done and how it was invisible to that person who was a skilled professional in, in, in the same uh, in the same woodworking line. This, this is not someone who was a potter, you know, coming across and having a look. And I think there's a lot of truth that we can certainly do our best work, but judging whether our work is good is something that is possibly beyond us. We know whether it's our best, but whether it's good, we, we're actually terrible judges of that because our eyes are just drawn to every little thing that we got wrong. And there's no celebration of the right. beauty and, and all the things that we got we got right in it. I, I think we're really very harsh critics on ourselves. And I think if we can be gentler on that, that would certainly be easier. One, one of the things, I mean, you know, not, not taking away from just trying to be patient with myself, but I, I really have enjoyed reading the, the 18th, 19th century books that have, you know, go into the detail of what some of this fine furniture actually looked like on the backside or the underside. You see these inclusion of knots, you see some horrific tear out, you see these, you know, gouges left by a scrub plane. And then there's this outside that, you know, has been really well done. But I found it quite helpful to to try and aim for less than perfection in some places so that I'm not beating myself to death about getting a perfectly dimensioned backboard to a saw tool that is essentially just a piece of workshop equipment that's going against a wall and no one will ever see the back of that uh, back of that saw tool. So there's that dichotomy of that. And then at the same time, wanting to always do my best. It's, it's a difficult balance. Well, that yeah, it's the balancing act that's, that's so so important. On the one hand, you want to infuse the work with this sense of quality, which is so lacking in the world now, and because we're so used to just throwing stuff away. Well, this broke. Well, get a new one. Get a new one. Don't fix it. Yeah, just buy a new one because it's not worth fixing. You can't. So the the uh, dust collectors, uh, shop vacs I have in my shop used to be really well made. These fine vacuums were very fine. They were great machines, and now they are not. And when they break, there are, I don't know, 20 pounds of junk, and there's no place to get parts for them, no way to fix them. 
and I am disgusted that I have to continue to buy those things. So I, I, I will swallow the, the bitter pill that Festool has become, but if, they're, if they produce a better product and it costs twice as much, okay, that's what I'll have to do. But the, the work that, that we do, uh, it's so difficult to judge because we're so close to it. Our focus gets so tight, and that, that makes it very difficult to, to see. I tell my students that don't try and design the best piece ever because it'll take your life, and maybe you'll do it, but probably you won't, and it's so frustrating. Design the, best, the second best piece ever. Design your second best piece ever. I think that uh, that helps take some of the burden off us. I'm not saying do sloppy work. I think doing good work is very, very important. Uh, I don't know if you know the Richard Sennett book, The Craftsman. Yes, The Craftsman. Yep. Uh oh, what a great book. Although he, I don't think he is, but he understands it at at a, at a very deep level. And uh, and one of his definitions of, of what a craftsperson is is someone who is trying to get better every time they do it, try and do it better. And that attention. I think is very important and very different than the factory work on, on an assembly line. Which brings to mind the uh, that zeitgeist uh, comment earlier, because in this book on digital minimalism, uh, he was talking about Thoreau and and Henry David Thoreau's move to Walden Pond and living this simple life, which was financed by his family. So let's not get too too romantic about it. I want to say they made pencils, and that was in the Henry Petrosky book on the pencil. But anyway, Thoreau's just talking about how to live a, a, a life of intention and choosing things carefully. And I think that's what that, that book is about, and I think that's what this work is about, is trying to live intentionally. It's interesting you, you mentioned that because uh, when you were speaking about Joyce earlier, I was going to tell you that I'm currently reading uh, Walden by, by Thoreau. And uh, if, uh-huh. we're going to talk, if we're going to talk about impenetrable language, uh, he's, a, he's a good candidate for that. But I do find, and I, and I recommended it to one of, my, one of my friends, I said that notwithstanding the language, I think that there's some very important concepts inside of the book. A dimension that I that I quite often try and think about is one that I read about in Toshio Odate's book on Japanese tools, where he speaks about a shukunin as as a master, but that it cannot be broken out from from speed. So there, there's this quality that a shoji maker will have, but they are expected to make a shoji panel in a day, and that these two are closely interlinked. Well, not not, not closely interlinked; they are inseparable. That you can only be a craftsman in the context of time. And that's, that's something I also, you know, try and remind myself occasionally, because sometimes my wife wants a a box for the pantry. She doesn't want the best box for the pantry that has ever been made in three years time. It's a, it's an interesting and movable goal. I think about uh, Yanagi's book, uh, The Unknown Craftsman. And he's talking, he's talking about pottery for the most part, but how uh, some of this Korean pottery uh, that he and uh, Bernard Leach, I think, were uh, investigating, had this kind of simplicity and crudeness because they were done, uh, they were making functional work and they had to do it efficiently. It wasn't going in a gallery. It was it was being sold and it was putting bread on their table. And that attitude still infused the work. And that's something that buying something from Ikea will never do. It has been taken... Although it's designed, you know, sort of a design wand has been waved over an Ikea piece. There is none of that soul in, in the work itself. And so uh, 
that's something that, that can be missed, I think. I must be honest, I found Yonagi's book to be quite a difficult read. Um, it's a very, in, yeah. You know, no and, and sorry, not, not, not difficult to read, but difficult to process. Um, I really struggled with the essence of it and getting to some of the concepts. And I think that for me, that's a book that I'll probably need to go revisit in a decade and, and have another have another go on you know, yeah. go at that. But coming back to your IKEA comment, you know, one of the things that strikes me is that the IKEA form is one thing. And and sadly, the, the last hundred years, I, I remember reading an article about a, a famous chair type and the, and the name eludes me now, but it was the first chair where they could pack a certain number of chairs into a cubic meter, you know, in terms of a shipping oh. container. Oh, and no. it, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it had, been, it had been built to that purpose. And, yeah. you know, it's, I think the thing with IKEA is, notwithstanding the furniture, I would, I would suggest that someone making an IKEA-like piece of furniture in their own workshop, doing their best, could bring out a beautiful piece of furniture, notwithstanding that it's probably worse worse quality, worse joinery, whatever you may, may call it than the IKEA one. But the intent to make that was to go and do the best work that they could do in their own workshop rather than buy something that, as you say, by its nature is intended to be disposable, throw away, upgradable. And if they can convince you next year that it was just the wrong fashion and you should throw it away and buy a new one, that's absolutely in their best interest. And I think that intent of, of making it in that way um, makes a huge difference to the actual product. Well, I think there's something more that needs to happen, and that is to approach the design with some intention of longevity, I guess, uh, is, is yeah. it. Uh, the engineering of it has to be considered so that it's, it's going to be around. And I think that, that will help infuse this, this piece with some spirit. You know, and that starts with just choice of materials. And if it's not particle board, you're already ahead of the game, you know, just taking it. And it doesn't have to be this fantastic exotic wood that is hard to work and endangered and, you know, all this stuff. It can be, you know, when I first started, I thought, oh, yeah, well, I've got to be working with, there's no wood around here. I've got to be working with wood from the East Coast. I've got to be working with, with cherry and walnut because there's nothing here. What a dope. There's stuff all over the place. There are many things that you can you can build uh, work out of. So I had a guy in class last week, and he works for one of the large timber companies. He's a log scaler. So he looks at a log and says, we're going to get so many board feet out of this log, and this is a grade A log, and this is a grade B log, or however however they do it. And we were talking about, about wood, and I said, yeah, I just can't stand working with Douglas fir because it's, it's so splintery. I'm catching splinters like crazy. I love hemlock. And he looked at me like I was crazy. He goes, hemlock? Yeah, I love this stuff. It's it looks like fur, only it's blonder, but it doesn't tear off in these large splinters that pierce me. And it's lovely to shape. It's easy to hand plane. It's and you can get it at the local, you know, Home Depot. You can get it at anywhere. And he just looked at me like I was nuts. And I said, I don't know. It's great stuff. So you just have to be looking around you for for that material and and that can Open doors. I can certainly open doors for you. We've got a wood here called South African pine. It's it's effectively a you know a white pine equivalent that, uh -huh. that we grow locally. And you know for a while I've I've been in this place of thinking no I must work with cherry I must work with walnut I must work with oak because you know these are the these are the good woods. But sometimes there's just a sheer joy in in working with some some relatively clear pine. It wasn't perfect, but some right. clear pine. It was beautiful and easy to work with the dovetails snugged up all nicely you know there were no no gaps on that and just had an absolute blast working with it um mm -hmm. not an expensive wood and right. i think if you you know you keep your eyes open 
you know, in, in, in my neighborhood, there's always a oak tree or a pine tree or some kind of tree that's fallen over in a storm or been knocked over, whatever, you know, and I'm, I'm always chopping little pieces off <laughs> and trying to do some turning with them and, and just having some fun with them. There's, I mean, there's so many wonderful woods to work with and you don't need to go and buy this crazy expensive uh, per board feet uh, material to, to enjoy working with wood. And like you say, I mean, you know, as soon as we're above chipboard and particle board and, you know, laminates and MDF, you know, once we've kind of put those to the side and we work with anything else, I see a lot of uh, Americans, you know, have a quite a low regard for poplar, you know, even using it as a secondary wood, it just doesn't seem to to get any love. And yet it's a it's a great fun wood to work with. And, you know, I've, I've, I've enjoyed working with it. So I certainly think there's a, a lot of love for a lot of different types of wood. Yeah, I used to go to the lumberyard and go through the poplar pile just to find the stuff that was that had this real dark stain in it. Mm. I don't know why it, it occurs. Because poplar, when we get it, normally is a sort of white or some shade of green color, which turns brown over time. Yeah. But if you search, you'll find these black streaks in the poplar. And I built a table out of it, and it looks like walnut. It's, not, it's half the weight of walnut. It tends to move a good deal more, so those are some reasons to avoid it. But it also it looks great. It just looks great, and it looks dark, chocolate brown. And Gary, um, one question about your mastery program. Um, I followed with you know some interest uh, Ashley McCorgle on on your on your mastery program, and you know the level of thinking and design, you know, it really seemed to ratchet up. But you mentioned you were studying at Reed, and you know, wanting to become an intellectual. And certainly, I you know I owe a lot of the books that I've bought and read and enjoyed to to your reading list in Handmade. You know, there's really there were a bunch of people that I'd never heard of before then. I've enjoyed that. You also mentioned that you're doing a lot of teaching now in the mastery program. So could you share a little bit about that program uh, for our listeners who oh, might not sure. have heard about that? Sure. Yes. Uh, I started the mastery program uh, in response to a student's query 20 years ago now. who said, well, I'm thinking of going back east to study. Uh, that, that was my problem when I started teaching myself woodworking. The only schools that were around were back, back east. And so I said to Matt Cooper, I said, well, why don't you study with me and we'll put a program together. So I got uh, Matt and Carl and David and uh, there were three of them and they were local folks and put a curriculum together and started this two year study program because everyone was was busy working. So I needed a program where people could come and visit me once a week for two or three hours and we'd go through a technique or uh, do some practice work to uh, educate them about a process that was important for the next project. And I, and I chose nine projects, nine projects that they were to design. I chose the piece, they did the design work. So it first starts with a small box, I call it a sushi box. And then we did it with dovetail box, and a small table, a standing cabinet, not a kitchen cabinet, but a freestanding cabinet, and then a curved piece. So there's a num number of pieces, a chair, and these are fascinating pieces and projects for people because, for me, it's fascinating to see their development. Ashley never finished the program, so I can't speak to his final development. But there are others who really embarked on a journey of discovery, not just in terms of technique, but in terms of design. I'm not interested in having people do my design work or clone themselves after me. Uh, you see many programs that are like that. And that was never my my interest. And I was also very interested in having people do a, as much work as possible in the in the time frame. There is a program 
uh, back east that builds one or two pieces in a year's time, which is great. And the pieces they make are amazing. But I think you learn more from seeing your designs and walking around them and going, oh, I failed here. This I need to do this better or I need to do this better. If you can see the work, the more work you can see, the more you will learn from it and the better the designer you will be. And that's that's the other important part of the program. So it's design and technique. And uh, it's been it's been great fun. So there's a local program, uh, a distance program where people come from miles around. And then I have a resident program where people uh, take up space in the, in the studio for nine and a half, ten months uh, out of the year. Well, I must tell you that... Uh... One of, uh, I think I mentioned I'm, I'm a member of Shannon Rogers' hand tool school and his apprentices, they all keep a log where they basically give a weekly, weekly update of where they're at. And, you know, recently uh, in the last month or so, I went through Ashley's log and I, you know, read it from start to finish. And I, and I must just say that what I found fascinating was he obviously had an interest in, let's call it art deco, contemporary art deco type style, which is not typical of what I see on internet forums. You know, there's a lot of... Uh, shaker and queen Anne love but you know that, that that's certainly not a period that i feel is is over traded and then i just watched the progression you know as you mentioned from that sushi box through and and one of his recent projects was a was a picture frame you know he had he'd bought uh, two artworks and he put this picture frame together that he that he ebonized and it's a really subtle piece you know it's not that it's covered in moldings and you know all kinds of crazy details whatever but it it is absolutely absolutely beautiful and i and I went back and I had a look at the stuff he was doing at the start. And sure, I think he, he's always been talented and he's had some ability. But it, it was really amazing just to see how being involved, I think, in a program that focuses on design and, and ratcheting up your designs to the next level and letting you make those mistakes and learn from them rather than focusing on techniques. It was it was incredible for me as a spectator to to watch that. Now, I live about 16 hours by plane flight away from you. So <laughs> I bounced it off my wife about whether I could fly every <laughs> every couple of months to join you guys. But uh, she, she wasn't so keen. She, want, she wants that money for the pension fund. But I, I, I've been incredibly impressed in just watching one of the people you know, who, who worked through, uh, as you said, a part of that program. Um, it, it's just mind boggling in terms of the, the progression in what I think is a very short period of time. So I'm, I'm glad that you're pushing people to do those projects, because I think from, you know, one to the next, they seem to take huge uh, leaps every time. Yeah, it, it really depends on the on the individual. Uh, and I do push people to develop their own style. And that's what our chat was about last night was a design strategy. And I, I'm a big believer that there's a difference between, there's a huge difference between the function of a piece and the intention of a piece. And the intent can be something very different. Both can be designing a chair, but the intention of one, it's clear, is different than the intention of another. And uh, when you think about different styles of furniture, think about, and this, this, is, this is a tough one. So we are we are stuck, I, I don't know, I don't know about South Africa. Uh, is, is it? it is our only architecture modernist now? Um, to a degree. Um, and, and unfortunately, with South Africa, I stay in Johannesburg, which is the largest town in South Africa. Johannesburg is effectively just under two centuries old. So, you know, in terms of in terms of uh, history of the country, I think the country, you know, in terms of being colonized in the in the 1600s. But the reality is, is the city I stay in 150 years ago, you would have just found prairie and trees here. So we have quite a limited window in terms of what is around here. There's no real celebration of, of old, you know, talking of, of art 
Deco, there's a there's a few elements of of that in some of the buildings, you know, maybe 1930s, 1940 buildings in the center of town. But I, I think that those are generally just seen as an old building, and you know, they typically knocked down and replaced with you know glass and brick. And I'm not going to say monstrosities. Some of them are very nice, but you know, there there certainly isn't a long heritage, a long history. I was, I was reading the village carpenter. Um, and, you know, the guy says he bought the farm in 1569. This country didn't exist in 1569 from a British colony point of view. It was still, you know, 100 years off the map before they were going to put the first ship down here. So we, we certainly don't have that kind of deep history that I think that yourself and, you know, Europeans have in terms of their architecture and their um, artifacts. Well, we we must keep a perspective. I was I was uh, visiting a friend in France one time and at a at a friend's house and and she looked she pointed at a table and she said see that table over there it's older than America it wasn't a great table but it it had us on age uh, well I'm on the west coast of Portland or uh, west coast of America in Portland and we are assailed by modernism in our architecture now and they're just throwing up stuff left and right and I think it's a curse but that's another topic I was so, talking yeah. last night about design and the difference between trying to understand the difference between a shaker piece and a modern piece. And you could describe shaker in terms of it being without ornamentation, uh, with clean lines. And that's how most people describe modernism. And I find no soul in modernism. And I do find it in shaker. Uh, What is the difference? And that's an intriguing topic. So that's where design becomes a really interesting uh, area of discovery. And I think, I mean, you know, expanding on that example, it's, it's hard to look at a shaker piece and the lack of embellishments there is a let's call it a philosophical or or a religious belief in 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 yeah. some ways yeah and yet i could look at danish modern that might not have anything turned on it as well and and that comes from a completely you know bauhaus movement of you know wanting to to show the form and 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 how something is held together those are completely different intents and like you say if we were to describe them to somebody who comes in with absolutely no knowledge of the history of them. They are two unembellished pieces, and that's that's really that. But modernism today follows its own religion, and that religion is capitalism. <laughs> yeah. And that, it's true. I mean, it's the, it's like that chair you mentioned, you know, d- being designed to fit into a shipping crate. How many could you fit into it? And that's the, that's the new religion. And so, and, and this is what... Okay, I'm going to briefly dip my toe into these waters. This is what the politicians don't understand, is that when a a factory closes down and leaves a town, it affects a culture. It affects people. And uh, our multinational corporations just still don't get it. They just don't get it. The importance of work to people and how how it affects us all. Anyway, I'll get off that. I appreciate that sentiment. And, you know, when I read your book, it really felt, as I said, like a, a bit of a philosophy book in a way, because there's some there's some deep concepts in there. And, and certainly for me, at the time I read it, it was, it was just the book I needed to read to help me find meaning and, and find a better place in terms of working in the workshop. So I recommend it shamelessly to people. And I've had some people who right back and say, you know, Ray, I don't know why on earth you recommended this to me. It's, you know, it's a, it's an interesting story about a, you know, walk in the woods and whatever, but I thought you were going to give me a good woodworking book. And then I've, you know, there's also some people that have, that have written back and said that they really enjoyed it and they got something out of it. And sometimes it's the same as me. Sometimes it's different, but I certainly think it's a book that grapples with bigger themes and bigger, bigger issues. And it's got an incredible reading list in it. I mean, if you just, just take all the, 
all the quotes and the and the books that you recommend in that book. I mean, there's a probably take your reading list and that book, and you've got a year's worth of work on your hands. Oh, and yeah. some, there's some a big lot. Things so I, I love that element of uh, of your book. I think in in closing, sorry, being conscious of your time, and I've already taken up a, a lot a lot of your time, and I really appreciate that. But I wanted to ask something in you know in the book. Joe Willie comes through as quite a distinct character. Your, you know, your, your dog. And are you are you still hiking with the dog in the woods these days? Is that something you're doing? Is there oh, is there a new dog on the scene? No, doggies are gone. Okay. My sweetie's got a doggy, and and I so I have doggy privileges, and that's that's great. So, uh, yeah, it's I'm at a time now. Losing the beagle was really tough. Losing, uh, yeah, losing Joe was always that was a tough one. So it's uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not ready yet. I'll, I'll be there, but not there yet. No, I'm, fair I'm enough. A pet like that, I, I sense you know, as a is a is a family member. I've got. I'm lucky to have two Labradors who run around the woods with me on a on a weekend when we go for a walk with the kids. You know, there's there's certainly something about sharing a walk with a, with a pet and a friend. I went this last weekend. We we obviously the opposite season from you at the moment, and we had some quite unseasonably cold uh, and and wet weather um, over the last weekend. And I thought. I like this, you know, I, I actually appreciate the opportunity to go and walk and get a little bit cold and a little bit wet in the, in the woods rather than the, you know, the blazing hot days that are typical of summer and spring. Yeah. And I went out with the dogs and, you know, seeing those guys just bound around with this huge level of excitement to get into the boot. Um, the park we go to is about, uh, you know, five miles up the road. And then there's a, there's a big area there where we can go for a walk and tons of oak trees and pine trees to, to go walking through. And the sheer enjoyment that they had when they realized that they were going for a walk, it's, uh, it's something to put a smile on your face. Well, uh, dogs in my, in my life have always taken up a, an important uh, part of my world. I am reminded, and I said this last night, speaking of, of other authors, there's a great book by, well, she's a scientist, Jill Bolte-Taylor. It's called Stroke of Insight. And it's about, she had a stroke and lost the left side of her brain functions, was specifically right brain, which meant she was more creative and more. And she described that creative side of her brain, I think, beautifully as dog-brained. <laughs> and your dog is always happy to see you. You just walked out of the room, you come back in, they're still happy to see you. And it's an amazing thing. And that's the the, the side of our brain that we need to uh, integrate with our uh, the other dominant side, the side that's so critical of our, of our efforts or uh, always looking at the clock. And uh, when you get to that synthesis, and that's what I'm after, that synthesis that Persig talks about in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, that's, that's the sweet spot. Doing stuff when you're doing work and moving forward and seeing the results of your efforts and uh, also being creative. That's, that's it. And uh, yeah, dog brand. Gary, uh, thank, thank you very much for your time. I, I think that both myself and the listeners will try and uh, strive towards that pre-industrial awareness and you know that synthesis <laughs> that you speak about. It's been a, a wonderful conversation. I'm very excited to hear that you're working on a new book. I look forward to uh, reading that and perhaps when you're getting ready for publication or just after publication, we can have another chat and you can talk to the listeners a little bit about that. But thank you very much for your generosity in terms of giving your time this, this evening for me and this morning for you. Really appreciate you making the effort. You're very welcome. And I look forward to speaking with you again. This was fun. Thank you. Well, folks, 
I hope that you found the interview as interesting as I did, and that by listening to some of Gary's discussions, you get a good idea of his way of thinking. Handmade, Creative Focus in the Age of Distraction, is quite a difficult book to describe. In the same way that Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance is not about how to fix a motorbike, Handmade is not a book about how to make a specific joint. It's also not really an autobiography or a narrative about a particular hike in the woods, although there are elements of that in the book. I'd suggest that at the most superficial level, there's a story about Gary and the lessons learnt on a hard hike. These are interwoven with stories about how he got started and how he progressed in his woodworking. As could be expected from a master woodworker, some of these stories may have benefit in terms of actually giving you some specific advice. I know for a fact that his advice on rock planes helped fashion my thinking on the topic. But the majority of the stories and anecdotes are more about how he handles specific situations and some observations he has on the woodworking condition. One of my favourite stories of his revolves around searching for a piece of equipment when all along it was in his back pocket. I've been there. Another about how he wanted to smash a chair and how frustrated he was during a glue-up. And yet, he walked away, came back, and was able to fix it. I've been there too. Have you cursed in the workshop? Been there. And so the anecdote's gone. I guess for me, particularly at the start of the hand-tool hobby as it were, these stories connected me to the common humanity of generations of woodworkers before me. I finished the book with some profound insights and it seems trite in a way to try and sum them up. But two lessons that stood out for me are 1. There are no woodworkers who don't make mistakes. A better woodworker is one who is more confident in his ability to fix mistakes, not one who has stopped making them. In other words, you don't get good. You'll always be learning, and you'll get better, and maybe, just maybe one day, you'll move through a project calm and confident in your own ability to deal with whatever the project throws at you. And that leads to the second lesson. Be patient with yourself. You are working on yourself all the time. In fact, I'd argue that now I think of every session in the shop as an adventure where I learn new things. I'm there to work on me, not just the project. Every project has its learnings, so be kind to yourself, no matter how short of the ideal you fall. Look back and realize how far you've come. Don't always look at the project and hold it up against perfection. But anyway, let's park my learnings for a bit and take a look at the book in some detail. The book, like a good play, is divided into three sections. Act 1 is Discovery and Surprise, and it has nine chapters, each of which has an underlying theme or story, and will follow Gary as he finds out about why he wants to become a woodworker. We'll examine the beginner's mind and we'll talk about the learning curve. There's also some spectacular failures here. I love the story about the plywood rack on the top of the car, and each little anecdote will make you smile, or it'll make you think. The last chapter in this section is called The Magician Distracts, and it reinforces the notion that virtually all we do is a failure at some level, and yet somehow it also celebrates that which is wonderful about our creations. Then we're off to another section, the midsection of the play, which revolves around practice. And in this section we see the author coming into his own in terms of skills and projects that he's working on. 
I particularly like the story about his workbench being the centre of the universe. And then there's the final section, called Forgiveness and Mastery. Some of the chapters are called The Problem at the Bench, Don't Think, Tools Have Magic, and Forgiveness. I think that in particular, this part of the book distills down the essence of some of Gary's critical learnings. By the time I'd finished the book, I felt like a young soldier who'd spent some time in the company of a grizzled old war veteran who had shared his best stories with me, and that there was probably a wealth of information there that I could benefit from, if only I had the patience and intent to work through it all. Again, by the time I had finished, I had changed. I was approaching the work I was doing in a different manner, and I think I was a better person for it, a better woodworker for it. I can't really do the book justice other than to say it would be the single philosophy book I would recommend to anyone starting with hand tools. I would give it my top ranking in the category woodworking philosophy. I don't want to take away from the anarchist's tool chest or the cabinet maker's notebook, and I'm sure that for different readers at different times, there are better books. There are so many good books about woodworking philosophy, and I don't want to take away from any of them. What I know to be true is that for me, this was the book I needed at a time when I was almost ready to pack it in, because every project seemed to frustrate me. I guess a more interesting debate than whether you should buy the book is what format you should buy the book in. As you know, I'm generally a fan of the physical copy of the book, but I think that if you have a daily commute that is longer than half an hour at a time, my suggestion is to consider giving the audiobook a go. If you're hovering on the fence about that, head over to Splinters, Gary's podcast, listen to a few episodes, where Gary reads extracts from his book. I think you'll rapidly get a sense of whether this is the right format for you. Although take note that the narrator on Audible is not Gary, so you do get a different voice on the audiobook. If listening on a commute is not an option, again I'd recommend the audio format if you like that format in any way. I found that by breaking the book into small chunks, I was able to process it more readily. If you're the kind of reader that insists on a fireside tale, a printed version is not a bad option. Just make sure that you take the time to go through it slowly and leave yourself time to reflect on the content. I think gaps of time between the different chapters and time to think is almost as important as moving through the book at rapid pace. It would be a good book to take on holiday and read a little bit every day. At 180 pages, the book's not a long book. But as at April 2020, it's $10 for either the audio or the Kindle so it's not an expensive book either. The paperback is in the region of $12. I'd suggest that the money's well worth it, if you find that your perspective shifts even slightly during the read, and I'm sure it will. So anyway, Woodworms, that's it for the episode. It's been a blast. Go hit the shop, and remember, be patient with the shop owner, and keep reading. If you have any comments or suggestions, perhaps a favourite book you'd like to suggest or one you're considering buying that you'd like to be featured on a future episode, send me an email at handtoolbookreview at gmail.com. As usual, if you'd like to support the show, you can find me on Patreon. Your contributions will support the purchase of books for the library and future episodes. <laughs>